I'm E. I'm Rob. And I'm John LeVar Morrison. Welcome to the next movement, folks. John Morrison, thank you so much for coming through. We really appreciate your time. And this is an honor, really. It's my honor and my pleasure. Like, mm. I, I love y'all's show. Uh, Josh and I, uh, my partner on Serious Rap Shit, we were on a while ago. So, yeah, you know, I love seeing y'all out in the world. <laughs> I love chatting with y'all on your show. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, appreciate, appreciate that. that. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, you were both on here previously. You joined us for one of our year-end episode. We talked about our favorite projects from that year. But what yeah. we didn't talk about is everything else that you do and all the work that you do. <laughs> um, and you do and are so many different things. You are a DJ. You are a writer, a podcast host, a radio host, a music historian, and so on. When you think of all those different identities and how... Each of them has allowed you to specifically contribute to hip hop. Which of them has strengthened your relationship with the culture the most? Oh, wow. Huh? That's, that's, wow. That's a question. Um, I don't know that any of them uh, has strengthened my relationship to hip hop culture more than the others. Instead of a hierarchy, it very much feels like a circle to me. Mm. Um some days like just on like the day-to-day -day, like nuts and bolts uh you know dynamic of my work some days you know i'm going out digging and i'm like learning and, and finding records other days i'm writing a thing or interviewing a person some days i'm djing a party you know what i mean and all of it uh because i've been doing all of it uh for so long it's all wrapped up into like the same the same ball you know what i mean it, it all comes from um growing up in hip-hop culture and it all comes from like a sincere enthusiasm for music and 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 also knowledge because it you know it ain't just oh i like music y'all like i know what the fuck i'm doing you know what i'm saying so yeah it's it's all interrelated i don't think that any one particular discipline has brought me closer to hip hop or more involved in hip hop than any others. I will say that MCN is what got me into the thing. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like MCN was uh, my first discipline that I really, really poured a lot of my young life into. And then all of the other stuff built from that. I learned how to write from that. I learned how to listen through that. So mm. MCN is the first thing, really. Well, you're a Philly native, of course, born and raised, I think the Northwest, right? Like West Oak Lane. Yeah, West there. Oak Lane. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what growing up there was like and how it may have like shaped or influenced your interest in music. 
Yeah, a, a few years ago, I did an interview with Ursula Rucker, who I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's from that that cluster of Northwest Philly for folks who aren't from Philly, uh, those neighborhoods, uh, West Oak Lane, Mount Airy, Germantown. We call them Uptown. You know what I mean? Like we call that section of Philly Uptown. So Ursula is also from Uptown. And Uptown is very much black working class and green like trees you know what i'm saying like Mm -hmm. it's it's not like you know no disrespect to south philly i've I've lived in south philly and adore south philly but it ain't like south philly where it's just all concrete you know what i'm saying like we grew up in in an area uh where a lot of folks black folks from north philly in the 70s started moving to West Oak Lane and Mount Erie, those areas were primarily Jewish. You know what I mean? Jewish and green. You know what I'm saying? Noam Chomsky grew up a few blocks from my mom's crib. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So like that area, it was different than, you know, certain parts of North Philly or South Philly. Uh, So that definitely shaped, uh, and Ursula and I in this interview were talking about that, like having a childhood in an area that was black, working class, and very green. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like kid friendly. Yeah. Uh so that's that's where I grew up. And my older brother is the person that got me into music. My older brother, um, he's eleven years older than me. And he used to be down with a group called the Devastating Four. Now the Devastating Four, this is like 87, 88. The Devastating Four were three women MCs, Gorgeous P, Roxy, and Nikki, three women MCs. They had a DJ, DJ Threat, and my brother made the beats. Okay. Right. So when I was like seven years old, we were going to rap shows. Like our family would go out and see my brother's group perform. And it'd be three women on stage, a DJ cutting up records, and my brother would have uh like the rolling TR909 making beats live on stage. It's like 87. Nice. You know what I'm saying? So I saw a lot of that stuff at a very early age growing up. And of course, you know, I was like, oh, I want to do stuff like this. So I started like writing and you know, coming up with like my own little songs and my brother showed me how to program like drum machines and make beats. Like by the time I went to high school, I think I started freshman year when I was 13, I could already like MIDI up drum machines and synthesizers and chop samples and shit. Like, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like brother had kind of put me in like beat boot camp, <laughs> you know, in my preteen years. So I, I had that going into uh, high school. But yeah, growing up in West Oak Lane, I had a very fun childhood, uh, but it was it was also Philly in the 80s. So I saw like a lot of crazy shit too. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But it wasn't like persistent crazy shit, you know, which was a blessing. Yeah. Mm. You said MCN sort of led to you writing and getting more serious about writing. When did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? You know, no, honestly, I don't know that I want to be a journalist now. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I adore music writing. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I, yeah. I very much grew up um, reading like Dream Hampton, you know, Kim Osario, 
uh, Selwyn Hines, uh, Reginald C. Dennis, Greg T. Like I, I grew up as a kid, like being really into music journalism. I never had the, like how a lot of fans are like, oh, music journalists. I know if a record's good. I never had that kind of like mentality. I always loved music writing. As far as I can tell you how I got into it, um, but I don't know that I necessarily ever really wanted to be one thing. Mm. You know what I mean? I just, I I like to play around with different things. But my junior year in uh, of high school, uh, I was cutting class and I saw a flyer for a documentary screening. And it said, uh, we're screening a documentary somewhere in the city. I don't even remember. Um, but we're screening a documentary on hip hop in Japan. So this is like 98. So I had already heard, I was like obsessed with uh, DJ Crush's Meso, which is related to The Roots, Black Thought, and Malik B are on that record. So I played Crush's album Meso to death. Um, I knew about like DJ Honda, that stuff. I had read uh, Mystic Journeyman used to put out a zine called Unsigned to Hella Broke, where they would tell stories about touring in Japan. Mm. You know what I mean? So I knew... I was like, okay, I know there are people, other people in the world doing this shit. You know what I'm saying? I know that people in Japan are doing it. So I was curious. I'd never been to Japan. I was curious. So I took down the number. I called it. And the guy who answered, because uh, I just wanted more information. Like, yo, what is this movie you're talking about? Uh, so the guy who answered was a writer and activist named Ogbona Hagens. And me and him are talking, we're like talking about music. And, you know, I'm like 17 or 18 at this point. And he's like, what kind of stuff do you listen to? Da, 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 da. And I was like, yo, you know, I love like freestyle fellowship. I love company flow, like that stuff. I'm just like excited to talk about music with this absolute stranger that <laughs> I just called up from a flyer. <laughs> and he's like, yo, uh, are you a writer? I'm like, I write rhymes. And he's like, no, no, no. I mean, like, uh, have you ever written like record reviews or stuff like that? I was like, no, but I read a lot of them. And he told me that him and his then wife, uh, a writer named Sheena Lester, who's like mm -hmm. a legend, yeah. you oh, know, y'all yeah. know, a legend oh, yeah. in, in hip hop journalism, him and Sheena were starting a local zine called the Philly Word. And he asked me if I wanted to be a writer. And I'm like, yeah, I can like write about music and get free records. Absolutely. <laughs> like count me in. So that's how I started. And then, you know, from there, I started writing for local like punk zines and stuff like that. I would dead ass like get a zine, read it, and then just write a letter or like call the person and be like, yo, I know how to write about music. You should let me write for your zine. So I started writing for like punk zines and stuff like that um and then that kind of i just did it for a while throughout my 20s briefly stopped and then kind of came back with uh a vengeance in my early 30s mm -hmm. so that's kind of how things went i just want to back up and tell people who don't know who sheena lester is so Sheena Lester served as an editor-in-chief for both Rap Pages and Double XL 
And she was a force behind A Great Day in Hip Hop, the photo that was inspired by Arcane's A Great Day in Jazz. So just want to give her many, many shout outs. Um, I have a lot of respect for her. Yeah. My first editor, Sheena, like I was a teenager. And when I started writing for that zine, I didn't even have a computer. I would like write record Damn. reviews by hand and I would call Sheena and read the review <laughs> <laughs> and they would they would like type it out and print it so yeah Amazing. Sheena was very patient with me <laughs> and like I was I was a kid who was kind of like a know-it-all kid so I would be, and I didn't know Sheena's background you know what yeah. I mean she, just Sheena you know what I'm saying like I had immense respect for her and Obona but I you know I didn't know anything I was a kid and I would be telling her like, yeah, you know, there's this scene in LA, it's called like Project Blue, and y'all should let me write about that. <laughs> and she knows <laughs> literally like all of that stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that's that's how it is. You're a kid, you're like enthusiastic. Right. What the fuck did I know about anything? But you yeah, like think they, you're schooling her, yeah. And she's like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, right. And, and and they were very patient with me, I remember. Um and you know, I learn. You learn. I I believe that you learn to write by being edited. You know what I mean. You write. You yeah. learn to write by writing, but you also learn from receiving feedback from editors. So I mm-hmm. I give uh, the both of them like infinite props and appreciation for being like my entry into doing this. I love that so much. Yeah. Love it. So when it comes to Philly history, specifically music history. I really look to folks like you to educate me because you are just a wealth of knowledge, which I think people are going to listen to this and and really know if they don't already know. Um, But I just want to soak up all the information that you have in hopes of having a deeper relationship with Philly. I'm curious about how your expertise was shaped. I imagine much of this happened organically because you're from Philly. I mean, you were talking about it earlier, but this is your city and you've been actively involved and engaged in its history as it's happening. I'm also thinking that maybe you had to learn some things about Philly that were outside of your own experiences. So what did this journey look like and who or what influenced it? Yeah, it was, it was definitely um, a lot of uh, personal experiences. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I really lean on that stuff because I, you know, I've been around playing shows and going to shows and knowing people forever. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of the, little corners of uh philly music history that i'm able to really dig into it's because i was there for a lot of stuff uh as far as the stuff that i wasn't there for um i love talking with people and just asking people like i I just interviewed uh, a gentleman uh, named frank holiday who is an mc he was really down with like a lot of the earliest DJ crews in Philly hip hop history. Like he was like Captain Boogie's MC when he was like 15. This is like 1978. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just talking with Frank. He's telling me about some of the first parties that he would go to in North Philly. This is like 78, 79. And they would have parties in the basement of uh like catholic churches you know what i mean like that was like where parties jumped off whereas like you know uh maybe in west philly folks were doing stuff in the park or whatever uh so i'm talking with frank and i'm asking him i'm like all right so what breaks were like the djs playing 
you know, we're, we're like the Philly breaks. And he tells me, you know, they were playing, I don't know if y'all could see mm-hmm. uh, the C-Man Day record back there. They were mm-hmm, playing C-Man mm-hmm. Day, uh, Bra. They were playing uh, Isaac Hayes, Truck Turner. Uh, the, I think the record is called Breakthrough. You know, the Commodores, uh, uh, the assembly line break. He's just like telling me the records that DJs were playing. I live for shit like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because it, it, it rounds out my knowledge you know, and, and, and deepens my own writing and perspective. You know what I'm saying? Y'all, you know, we, we all interact, the three of us on, you know, Twitter and and Instagram and shit. I'm not a, you know, debate about the same 10 records from the nineties kind of guy. Right. Like that's not, you know what I'm saying? Like God bless Mm -hmm. the people who are into that shit, but you know, I'm not into that kind of stuff. I want a deeper knowledge and understanding because I love this shit. It's not academic. It's not, you know, uh, a thing that I'm I'm pursuing, you know, for a degree or whatever. You know what I'm saying? This shit is like our people made and accomplished some really incredible creative things hmm. despite a social order, capitalism, white supremacy, blocking us or attempting to block us from creating all of these things. People created beauty out of nothing or damn near yeah. nothing i want to honor that shit and write about it as best i can so that people younger than me can understand it mm. so that's mm. that's what it really is you know what i'm saying like I'm, there's going to be a time when i'm not here i want to leave some shit behind so that our folks coming up after me can really understand what we did and what we created in the world so that's yeah. if you ask like the influence like that's really like the engine behind a lot of my work if we're talking like from uh, a historical and like archival perspective yeah that's beautiful and so important so important yeah, yeah. we we got a lot of you know hip-hop media that's like gossip shit which is fine you know what i'm saying like i sit in the crib and like bug out and watch you know like loving hip-hop and shit when i'm bored you know what i mean like that shit's fine. I'm not like a, you know, a purist about that kind of stuff uh, or precious about it. But I feel like I can put a lot of my skill and energy into really like uh, writing about this culture from a historical perspective. Then fuck it. That's my lane. I'll do it. You know? It's almost like you have access to my notes here, John, because you kind of answered the <laughs> you kind of answered the question that I was going to turn to. It's interesting though to hear you say that. Not really sure you want to be a music journalist, um, even though you clearly have this like passion for learning about it, and it sounds like a, a passion for like passing it on. That seems to be specifically true about Philly, and not just about hip hop, but about jazz and soul and and the, the history of rock music here. And it kind of feels like you live and breathe this stuff. I, and I think the city and E and I are like indebted to folks like you and Max mm-hmm. Ochester, people who are out there like really working hard to preserve the city's music history. I very much feel like uh, this work is part of my mission as a younger person. I didn't really know, you know, uh, what I was doing in life. You know what I'm saying? I was, I was just like kind of out here in the wind but I very much feel like uh, this is part of my mission and this shit's fun. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's kind of what keeps me coming back to it. You know, 
it's it's fun. It ain't like I'm making like a ton of money doing it. You know what I'm saying? I love uh, digging in and finding stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like it's I don't know if it's like from like the sampling thing and like being a kid and like looking for records to like make beats from and shit. But yeah, when when you talk about uh, you know like the other genres outside of hip hop, I'm very much a proponent of like that RZA ideal that like hip hop and sampling incorporates incorporates all of the other mm -hmm. things around it. You know what I'm saying? Guru says something uh, very similar to that too. You know what I mean? So it's very natural for me to not only uh, navigate hip hop fluently, but also jazz and psychedelic rock and funk and soul. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's like hip hop DJ shit too. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like knowing all of this other stuff, we're kind of required for that. Other people in other cultures can kind of be specialists. We're required to have a wide range and, and like big ears in that way. I've been on the move, grinding like metal on tombstones. All I hear is copies on some blues mobile shit. Soon as niggas catch on, I'm over it. If you plot in, I hope you notice the twist. My strides defy budget. Niggas trying to be kings but can't define function. Living in my truth, y'all dead bluffing. It's disgusting. Word. Always traveling. All credit given to the unseen. I'm the presence. When I grab the do not block the exits. Counting blessings. Chasing the infinite spectrum of what it means to be content. Squad bend off the eloquence. Reckon it comes soon. Nowhere but the dark to run to. So get comfortable. John, you contributed some words to the book that came with the specially packaged edition of An Unknown Infinite by Amani and King Vision Ultra. Yeah. And your words have stuck with me. You said, this is just part of what you said, but you said, mm -hmm. most music moves in a two-dimensional space. It side scrolls left to right like Super Mario World. Yeah. Intro, <laughs> head into verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, and we out. Mm -hmm. But the loop leads us to other places by staying the same. There's real magic to be found within the driving, unchanging quality of the loop. Quote, unquote, raucous listeners, critics, and even producers, just rock kids with drum machines, want hip-hop beats to have, quote, unquote, changes because the loop bores them. I don't understand or relate to that shit. The loop isn't a static circle. It's a spiral that can lift us upward and outward or pull us down into infinity. Cool Herc and his merry-go-round technique was an attempt at developing a practical looping technology with turntables, isolating the most powerful and dynamic part and repeating it until ecstasy. Add an MC to animate and narrate and you have a godly formula. Ooh, man. Um, since reading that, which was probably, this was 2020, I think, when uh, the project came out. I think that, yeah, I think that record came out in 2020. Okay. Absolutely powerful, powerful yeah. record. Incredible. Yeah. And it's one of the records we talked about when you were on the show last time. Mm -hmm. um, but since reading those words, I've thought about it again and again I've, as I've listened to hip hop, but also other music like jazz and post rock and even some like ambient stuff. It's just such a, dis, uh, such a succinct description of the art form and its meditative qualities. And it articulated something that I experienced, but don't know how to describe. 
And I just felt so grateful for that because I think being able to put things into words is powerful. It helps us understand them. It gives us more perspective, but it often feels hard. I mean, at least for me to put what I love about music or or why it makes me feel a certain way into words. That's clearly not a problem for you. And I'm, (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering if it's a skill you've had to develop or is it something that's come, come naturally to you? Definitely a, a still developing skill. My music making practice helps with that a lot too. Hmm. You know what I mean? Even even outside of um, kind of describing things uh, esoterically, even like the practical nuts and bolts of making a record. You know what I mean? I went to school uh, as an audio engineer. You know what I mean? So I can sit. You could send me a Pro Tools file right now, and I could sit and mix it. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then beat making and all of that stuff. So having that foundation as a music maker helps me out a lot as a writer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I see it mm-hmm. in my own particular way. You know what I mean? Like the building blocks of how music works. Um, so, you know, it ain't it ain't like, you know, something I wake up in the morning and I'm just like, boop, boop, bow, you know, (laughs) it ain't that kind of thing. Um, It is very much, um, you know, work, but that, you know, that, that piece uh, from Gang and Imani's record, ironically, I did kind of wake up and just write that. (laughs) I had been meditating on that idea uh, for a while and also reading journalism and criticism of hip hop from folks who clearly didn't grow up in hip hop. Mm. You know what I mean? That's, that's something that like rock kids would always say to me, like, there's no change. What's the change in the beat? Yeah. I'm like, who wants that shit? You know, <laughs> clearly you do, but you know, we don't. Um, but I'd been meditating on that and uh, that idea and the sound that uh, Gang and Imani had, had, had uh, established in that record. And then also Gang and I were having a lot of like private conversations about uh like making stuff you know what i'm saying and and like the the perspective behind uh making beats and shit um which is kind of like an ongoing conversation with he and i but i remember i was in my bed and it was probably like three something in the morning it was it was like dumb late or early depending on (laughs) how you like look at it but i woke up and just like wrote that and I looked at it the next day and was like, that feels like what I want to say about this record, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or an aspect of this record. Um, so I probably did like some light editing, like moving words around. But the, yeah, that was very much a thing that I thought about for a while when I knew Gang, you know, it asked me, he had asked me to write something for the album um, in the, in the packaging. I had been meditating on that for a while and it kind of like hit me. I woke up and wrote it. Yeah. So that's kind of how that came about. It's incredible. I'm grateful for it. It stuck with me. If that wasn't yeah, clear. I'm, I'm glad. And like you reading that. Yeah. I, I felt that. Hmm. One of the things that I've come to really appreciate about your writing is how you intentionally create space for black folks. When you're talking about our community, you use words like we and us a lot of times in the pieces that you do. And I am so grateful for that Mm. in the same way that I felt community through black music and art. I found it in your writings and that intentionality allows for a deeper connection with the article that I'm reading. 
if you can remember, when did you consciously decide to create this space for black readers in your pieces and what led to that decision? You know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I recently found a bunch of pieces. Somebody had like uh, scanned or, or like transcribed a bunch of pieces that I wrote when I was like 19. Um, they're terrible. I'm, I'm not like <laughs> interested in like sharing that shit. Um, but I have to go through some of my older writing to see if I was doing that then. But it's very possible, you know what I mean? Because um, I grew up around some folks. I'm thinking particularly um, a great mentor of mine, uh, Baba Jim Gray, who passed away. Who was uh really like a figure in uh, the Pan-Africanist movement, African consciousness movement. Like I, I grew up around people like that as a kid. And I was very much, I should tell you, you know what I mean? How I was as a teenager, I was very much on that like Pan-Africanist uh, pro-Black stance. And that's still a foundational part of my politics um, so it's it's natural for me. I'm writing about black music. I'm writing for black people. Other people can and do read the work, and that's fine. You know what I'm saying? And it's all love. But that's the foundation that I come from. So I don't mm -hmm. know exactly if there's a point where I started doing that, but it's just you know it's it's yeah. just how I I think about it. You know what I'm saying? If I'm writing about music because I don't just write about black music too right so right if I'm writing about something it's still from my subjective position mm -hmm. as a black man I don't pretend you know journalism kind of has this thing where people pretend to be objective yeah. as if it's like an empirical science it is not <laughs> you know what I'm right saying? right especially music journalism you're you're listening to a record hopefully tickle something in you emotionally yeah. that makes you want to write about it that's completely subjective like yeah. all of that is a subjective experience but we still because of the origins of journalism and, and all of that other stuff that I won't get into we still have to kind of pretend like oh we're being objective I, I don't deal with that I don't deal with that you know what I'm saying when you read what I write understand that it's coming from the perspective of a cisgendered heterosexual black male with all the stuff that comes along with it. And that's what, you know, the, the writing, that's the lens that the writing is being filtered through. Yeah. And I love reading other people's writing through their filters. Cause I learn, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I understand on a deeper level. Yeah. I've, I've had that conversation so many times who I am informs how I engage with music. Yeah. So how could I leave my identity out of the conversation? That doesn't make any sense to me. And it's disappointing when I read pieces that do that, that omit that part. And it's just like, oh, you could have dug deeper. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even express uh, how much I want a writer's perspective to inform their work. The next couple of questions I have are about two pieces that you've written that I, I really just loved reading. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one is an article you wrote last month for OK Player titled How Black Musicians Carved Out a Space in Ambient Music. 
The piece looks at how black musicians have used music as a vehicle to honor, explore, and express our spirituality. For centuries, it's been a sacred place where we can freely express ourselves. And that made me think about the other art forms that we've used to do this, specifically writing. So when you reflect on your work, does it feel like you've used this space to further connect with our spirituality, history, and traditions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that ambient piece, uh, that's another thing that had been kind of uh, floating around in my mind uh, for a bit, wanting to write about Black folks and ambient music and it connected to being connected to spirituality. That's something that's just, you know, that I've been uh, wanting to write about and got the opportunity to do it uh, with OK Player. Um, but yeah, you know, certain music, you know, I I feel like Black folks uh, with music, we kind of come from uh, a foundation of like, this is a spiritual endeavor. You know what I'm saying? That that thing is kind of always uh, tied up in our, our music and it's very much a, a human thing as well, uh, more broadly. But it is, yeah, it is something that um, I think brings me a little bit closer to spirit and tradition and all of that stuff you know what i mean it's it's i'm very much uh a, a person who thinks that uh pretty much any and everything can be meditative hmm. you know what i'm saying so with a lot of my uh work and the the music that i choose to engage with and and write about i'm explaining the thing but i'm also engaging with the thing you know what i mean so it, it feels Sometimes writing can feel meditative for me too. And it it it, it kind of makes me feel uh closer to that that feeling or presence of of spirit. So to, in short to answer, yeah, it, it is uh something that uh kind of draws me in. But I, you know, I've meditated for a long time. You know what I mean? I'm 42 and I started when I was uh 25. Hmm. And and really gave uh like my, my 20s and and a big part of my 30s like gave my those years to uh spiritual practice i had a lot of stuff that that i had to uh kind of dig out of me in order to be uh, a healthier person uh spiritually mentally emotionally so meditation was was the thing that really like saved me in that mm -hmm. way so i i learned to be meditative in almost everything music making writing listening talking with people you know what i'm saying yeah. it doesn't have to be like going somewhere in a quiet room sitting you know on lotus as they say which is helpful and and necessary but yeah it's it's definitely something that uh you know like i like i was saying earlier when we were talking uh all of the things music making and and writing and and dj and all of the things uh are interrelated and spirituality for me is is definitely in that mix too mm. the other piece i want to dig into is an interview you did with arm and hammer for the wire in 2020 right before they released shrines yeah. it is by far one of the best and most accurate articles i've read about them it's oh, not wow. just it's not just because there's a directness in naming that arm and hammer makes music that speaks to black history and experiences because other folks have definitely touched on that. Mm -hmm. The difference for me lies in the perspective this article is written from in the space that's created in, in this piece. It feels like language is being used 
in the article, the language that is being used in the article is being passed directly from one black person to another, mm. which I think Woods and Elusive do through their music. And in that sense, it's clear to me who this piece was written for. So, you know, outside of listening to the music one-on-one, I rarely have been able to connect with Arm & Hammer in such a complete and unab- unobstructed way because I'm going to keep it all the way real. Their fan base is overwhelmingly white. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the coverage they get, in my opinion, caters to that audience. Yeah. And in that environment, the work is interpreted in a different way. Sometimes it feels watered down and it mm. becomes something else. Kind of what you spoke to about sort of leaving your identity on the shelf when you're writing about you know, a particular piece or subject. I feel like that happens when it comes to Arm & Hammer sometimes. Yeah. So, and, yeah, go uh, ahead. Now, I was just going to say, sometimes, you know, a thing that I learned that I think particularly white music journalists uh, struggle with, sometimes everything ain't for me. You know what I'm saying? And in a heartbeat, I'll pass along a thing. Someone asked me, uh, shoot, I can't remember uh, the filmmaker's name. But I'm I'm tired. This is the end of my day. But, no, you're uh, good. You're good. It's a a black male, uh, a black gay male filmmaker who made these beautiful films in the '80s. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked me to write about it. And, you know, it's like, oh, you're black. You know, write about this. And I was like, cool. But how about you know this person who would be able to you know speak to the queerness of these films in a different way. You know what I'm saying? That I probably can't hit the mark on. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I think that when, when and bringing it back to like the Arm & Hammer thing, you know, I don't know that I, nece- or I didn't necessarily feel like, uh, I felt good about the piece, but I didn't necessarily know. I never really know if I like hit the mark quote yeah. unquote, with a thing. Um, I kind of leave that to, you know, like the reader's interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also recognize that not everything is is for me, you know. Yeah. And I think that um, with a lot of Black artists, not even uh, just like Arm & Hammer or like hip-hop artists, you know, we live in a music ecosystem where white folks have a lot of voice and a lot of say. Mm-hmm. in stuff you know what I mean and and they write about black art all the time you know what I'm saying and a lot of the shit don't necessarily hit and I'm gonna keep it a buck you know what I mean um in my own work I try to recognize the times in which I'm not the writer for this piece of music or with or with you know to engage with this piece of art yeah you know so and you know I don't feel no way about it you know what yeah. I'm saying? I I try to be like, all right, you know, this isn't for me. Somebody else would contextualize this and really dig into this in a deeper way. With the Arm & Hammer piece, it was for The Wire. I had a long conversation. I think we might have talked twice. I can't, I can't remember if um, me, Elucid, and Woods talked twice, but I felt, it, or it might have been me, Elucid, and Woods talked once for like a long combo. And then mm-hmm. me and Woods talked again later. I can't I can't exactly uh remember what happened, but after talking with them for a while, I felt like, okay, and listening to shrines a lot. I was like, I think I can nail this or come close to nailing yeah. what needs to be communicated for this piece. Yeah. Yeah. You did. You did. And I think a lot of times 
what you captured in this article gets left out of the conversation, which is really a disservice to what they do with their music. I mean, even when I've read pieces written by other black people and they don't, it doesn't, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna leave it at that. But um, that just don't hit the mark for me. And I think it's because they're catering to a very specific audience. So they're, they're really practicing that objective journalism and just saying like, well, this is, you know, how I'm going to approach this. And it's just a shame. It's just a shame for me. Yeah. There's so much color in life that can be brought into writing. It's all subjective anyway. You know what I'm saying? Yes. You can't get around that. You can't. I don't want to write anything that sounds like a press release or like, you know what I'm saying? Just, yeah, Uh, I'm not interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not interested in reading that. So. (laughs) All right. We got to move on and talk about the roots. And um, I I feel like we've only asked you about writing, which I kind of regret. And I, I feel like we could also go another half hour to talk about other aspects of the things that you do. But I do have a sort of segue question to ask you. You wrote a book about the roots. Do you want more? Yeah. That was published in, I think that was 2020 also by Halfway mm-hmm. Books. A great read for anyone who's a fan of the band, a fan of that Thank period you. of hip hop, or just generally interested in Philly music history. And I think this was your first book, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm working on the banger of all bangers. Okay. <laughs> book number two. All right. But um, yeah, it was, and it was, you know, it was like a, a chat book, essentially. Yeah. Where did the idea come from for this book? So, uh, Shay Serrano, who's uh, a fantastic writer, who's now making like fantastic TV shows. He's, he's a brilliant guy. I remember I was sitting in my house. I was working on a, a piece about Sun Ra mm-hmm. and flipping back and forth between like the piece I was writing and Twitter. So I'm scrolling Twitter and Shay put out a call. He's like, yo, I'm starting like a small like boutique publishing initiative. And we're looking for five writers who can really write about a rap record that they love. And I'm looking in the comments and it's people with like the times and fucking guardian and, you know, niggas that went to like J school and all of this stuff. Like people like heavy duty writers. They're like, I'm sending you something, bro. I got you. So Malik B uh, I believe that was around the time when Malik B had passed and I'd written like an obit for Malik B. So Malik uh, was kind of on my mind and I grew up knowing Malik, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, do I want to like put in for this thing? But the kind of like competitiveness in me was like, nah, like, you know, put your sunrise piece aside <laughs> and pitch this uh, thing for Shay. So I sent Shay an email. I wrote my pitch, you know, right there. Uh, I don't even think I wrote it in a doc. I think I was like, just wrote the pitch in the actual email uh, that I sent him. And 1,200 writers from around the world, like, sent him uh, pitches. And he picked, you know, me and four other, like, absolutely brilliant writers. That was, like, the origin. And, and the piece that I pitched was on The Roots, uh, Do You Want More, which is... Uh, a fascinating record to me. I remember the minute it came out, I distinctly remember Black Thought and Malik B walking around our neighborhood in the summer of 1994. They had a Nike box 
filled with uh tapes of the distortion aesthetic single the one like the cassette single that had uh dice raw and the lesson yeah. on the b-side they were walking around our neighborhood just selling tapes probably about to like go to tour or whatever and like scrounging up money um so i felt a very close and i love the record when it came out so i felt a close relationship with the record and in that pitch you know to shay i just told a story you know uh Kurt Cobain was killed uh, or, kill, or killed himself in uh, the spring before Do You Want More came out. He was signed to Geffen Records, the same label the Roots were signed to. And essentially, the Roots panicked because Nirvana, for folks who don't remember, Nirvana was the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. And mm -hmm. within the band, uh, the Roots, their logic was, okay, the label's biggest cash cow is done over with they're going to start start dropping the smaller bands because that's how labels used to work like mm -hmm. if you were a small band maybe you wouldn't get you know a second third fourth album um they would they would get rid of you so the roots finished do you want more and they jetted off to europe basically to like build their buzz up and try to like play as many shows as possible and, you know, they they kind of, uh, Questlove described it as like an exile, like they were in exile in Europe while the dust settled, you know, with Geffen and the whole uh, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain thing. Uh, so once they were done with that, they came back, it was, you know, Do You Want More was released and, you know, it didn't sell a lot, but it was, you know, to critical, great critical acclaim. They didn't end up getting dropped. Uh, and then they went on to be, you know, what really one of the greatest, most enduring hip hop acts ever. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was the story that I told in that pitch. And, you know, it came out. We had some brilliant folks uh, working with us editing. Dart Adams fact checked it. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? It was, it was like an ill process, you know, and Shay, uh, to his credit, he paid us in advance. Uh, he paid us a nice advance up front, got uh, like some other investor to throw in some money. And then we sold the book. You know what I'm saying? Like they set us up with like our own like Gumroad account and we sold the book. And, you know, he was on Twitter every day like, yo, buy this book, you know, buy John's book, you know, da 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 da. Yeah. So it was, it was a fantastic experience, you know what mm. I mean? To be able to do that and to know that one guy who's a writer, is doing right by uh, writers and journalists better than some of these publishing houses is is insane. Yeah, absolutely insane. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad wow. to hear, I'm glad to hear that that like the experience of you writing it was a great experience and yeah, it was dope and it it helped a lot because a lot of folks were were became like engaged with my work after doing that. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that thing came out and like publishers and book agents are like following me on Twitter and like DMing me like, Hey, if you want to write like a book, you know, let's, let's, let's do a call. You know what I'm saying? So it's, yeah, it was, it was ill. Yeah. It was real ill. That's great. I love that. Well, speaking of the roots, let's get into it. Yo, I use the mic to slap you in your face and erase your taste. Disgrace your gate, put your title to waste. Dominant lyrical grace from a place called Wow, Illadel, Val, Pincy. That's the residency. Consistent currency. My pockets never empty. Some cats believe they empty, but we know they all 
showing Philly niggas what an implore. Nobody know your record nor who you open it for. Can tell your squad's artificial while approaching the door. So you should prepare for lyrical terror that's pure. Step up to the reservoir of the soul proprietor style messiah or the Kaya Lord down with dice four. The matador shorty connoisseur stomping whatever you build to the floor. Similar to that of a dinosaur. I told you I'm the rap predator. You insist to imitate what for? Superstar niggas is 10% real. 90% invented for a fucking record deal. Coming with something veterans can't feel. I hit you like a steel anvil. Because you grafted off the next man's skill. But still, I remain mellow. Seeing the theatrics of Othello. But know the tactics of Ruppy Ello. D-C-L-O. N-E-S. Fest. The phony S. Cats is felonious. So... Every episode, we spend the second half of the episode talking about an album chosen by our guest. It's an album that is a classic as defined by them, or just an album that's significant to them for whatever reason. And tonight, I cannot believe I'm saying this, for the very first time, we've been doing this for almost five fucking years, we are finally talking about The Roots, and we will be discussing Illadelph Half-Life tonight. On a show Wait. named after a Roots song. We've had yes. to wait almost five years to talk about the roots. You know what though? I'm glad we waited because you are the perfect person to talk about a roots album with. Like Thank I you. I think it's it feels like destiny at this point. Like it just it. we were waiting for you. So yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to start out by asking you about the very special and rare copy of this project that you have. I think it will be fun for our listeners to hear about it. So I'm gonna let you tell them about it. Yeah, I have uh, a promo cassette of Illadelph Half-Life, but it's Philly legendary Philly DJ uh, Cosmic Kev, mm -hmm. he's mixing Illadelph Half Life like it's a mixtape. Mm. So he's like cutting up clones and shit. He's, you know what I'm saying? It, yeah. it sounds like you're hearing him like on a street tape or like on the radio or whatever. And, you know, they, they gave these out in advance of the record. And Illadelph Half Life uh, is significant and and very different from the two records that came before it organics and do you want more because the roots uh were intentionally leaning into a harder more sample based sound right those first two records uh were very dope but also had um they were leaning into like their jazz chops on a lot of their on a lot of those songs keyboard solos and shit popping up on rap records the roots before Illadelph half-life didn't sonically fit in with their contemporaries hmm. djs know if you play one record and you play another one and you play the third one that doesn't fit with the flow like the drums aren't as hard or you know the texture isn't the same you might lose the crowd yeah. right so Illadelph half-life was really the roots attempt at creating something that like bumped it had like a little more edge to it it wasn't like a you know oh this is like hip-hop jazz it wasn't you know a, a rap band at a jazz festival kind of sound they they wanted to kind of uh step away from that so this promo tape very much feels like an attempt at the by the roots to connect with the streets. This shit sounds like a mixtape. And Cosmic Kev, you could literally, if I, well, I got a radio over there, I could turn on 
Power 99, Philly's like quote unquote urban, like black station. And Cosmic Kev is probably on the radio <laughs> right now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like he has owned Philly radio for decades, mm-hmm. for, for decades. And mm-hmm. even before he was on the radio, you know, he was in the parks doing it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like early, late 70s, early 80s. You know what I mean? He battled Jazzy Jeff at the Hotel Philadelphia, which was a venue on Broad Street in like 83. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. Cosmic Kev is like the guy in yeah. Philly as far as like radio DJs and whatnot. So it, yeah. it felt like them doing this promo tape was like them trying to like kind of reach out like, yo, we not just for the jazz festivals. Like we got some shit for the street, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. Illadelph Half-Life always felt to me like them trying to figure out how to work in a studio, like write songs that can be recorded in a studio as opposed to just recording like their live set or what they were doing on South Street, you know? There was definitely a set of like competing dynamics, you know what I mean? I talk about this a little bit um, in the Do You Want More book. You can tell that the roots had like a lot of ambitions as far as the studio but they were rooted in uh show business you know what i'm saying like black thought uh i did an interview with him a while ago where he's telling me about how you know he used to like impersonate james brown when he was a kid you know what i'm saying quest love's father had him in show bands when he was a kid you know what i'm saying like and they they took that uh, kind of very much like showbiz showmanship and injected it into a rap band. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that on Organics and on um, Do You Want More? That scat, I know you're a way of kicking, baby. They're mm-hmm. scatting and shit. Illadelph Half-Life, they were like, we're not doing any of that. This is going to be a hard record. And even if you listen to it, this this record makes me nostalgic for a lot of reasons, but a lot of what they were doing, you could play a lot of the songs from Illadelph Half-Life next to a lot of the lesser known Philly rap groups that were around at the time. You know what I'm saying? Tainted Minds, Sunrisers, the Mountain Brothers, Fat Cat Click. They, they fit in, you know, to, to that sound even though they they were better than a lot of those groups, you know what I'm saying? But like, yeah, it, it made sense. It wasn't like quote unquote acid jazz or like a, a jazzy rap band. Right. They were, they were chopping a lot of this shit up. A lot of these beats on this record uh, were made on the Insonic ASR 10. You know what I'm saying? Like they were like producing it like a, a rap record in the mid nineties should be produced. Hmm. How did you come to be in possession of this Cosmic Kev mixtape version? <laughs> there's there's no like grand story behind it. I literally <laughs> found out about it and and bought probably the last copy on Discogs. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I don't remember it from back then. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Nobody is crazy because, uh, you know, I was in like record stores and shit as a kid. People used to hand me promo stuff. Yo, man, here, listen to this. People would hand me promo stuff all the time. I remember a kid gave me a VHS copy of Eminem's video. Uh, I just don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like before, and I was like Eminem. Like this kid's name Eminem. You know what I'm saying? Like 
before you know like uh slim shady lp like popped right, off and right. everything so that was like common in the 90s you'd be yeah. a kid like roaming around and shit another kid would just hand right. you he's working a street team and would just hand you a thing yeah. so i don't you know i i didn't get this back then for some reason but i just you know in the book that i'm working on i've been uh really digging in even more you know researching with like philly stuff and i love having uh like the tangible media that i'm writing about so i i you know found out about this this roots illadelph half-life cosmic kev tape i was like i gotta get a copy of this yeah so i went out and found it nice love it Malik B gave you one of the beat tapes that they used to write this album when you were like 14 or 15, right? Yeah. <laughs> tell, please tell us that story. Please. Yeah, so is that's yeah, it's crazy. And um I don't think I have that tape anymore, but I also uh I have a bunch of stuff at my mom's crib, like from when I was a kid, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. records in her basement and attic, a bunch of tapes and shit. So I may still have that tape, but uh, when I was like 14, 15, um, I was in a duo, uh, me and my man, Tommy, shout out to Tommy. Uh, we had a group, uh, we had a couple of names, but like one name we had landed on was the upstarts, which was like one of us had like read it in like a Marvel comic. It was like a group of mutants that killed other mutants. So we were like battle. We were in the, like the battle thing. Right. So we would go around the neighborhood, battle people. We would go to Germantown and battle out in front of uh, uh, that library that's right on uh, Shelton Avenue. Mm-hmm. So that was like our thing. And Malik B lived on, uh, I think he lived like two doors down from Tommy, which Malik B, if you go to my mom's house right now and you stand on her back porch and point directly out, Malik B's mom's house is right across the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I would see Malik all the time. And we would like stand out on the corner, like sit on the stoop and like rap and shit. And you know, he's a, a beautiful guy and like the best freestyler, like off the top freestyler in the world. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So one day we're sitting on his mom's step and he's like, yo, we working on an album. This, you know, Do You Want More was already out. And shit. And he's like, yo, we're working on the next album. If I give y'all some beats, will y'all write to it? And me and Tommy's like, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So he gave us this beat tape. And I remember distinctly remember thinking, like, this shit don't sound like the roots at all. <laughs> I didn't know that the uh, the roots had created a production crew called the Grand Negas, you know, and had uh Kilo and Chaos chopping up samples and shit Mm -hmm. to make beats you know for the roots and they're all over illadelph half-life uh kilo and chaos the producers are all over like you read the credits it's like kilo produced by kilo kilo and quest love produced by grand negus you know they had brought in producers who could make like street shit essentially Mm. um so malik gave us this tape i remember tommy and i went home and wrote to it i don't recall any of the beats from that tape showing up on Illadelph Half-Life but I remember there was one beat on there I won't name the sample but it's the same sample that Micah 9 used uh, for American Nightmare hmm. 
that song it's an american nightmare like it's i love that fucking song but they <laughs> flip the same sample mm. um so tommy and i we like wrote to it and some shit happened like malik wasn't always around and then tommy uh I don't want to say he got sent to like juvie or some shit, but he, I remember he had the like bounce and wasn't in the neighborhood. So like whatever tape we had made, I remember we recorded it uh, in my house on like my little like karaoke tape deck or whatever. Um, But, you know, it never got to, got back to Malik. You know what I'm saying? But it's, yeah, it was, it was, it was ill. He definitely was like, uh, you know, open to hearing it. We like little kids and shit. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like we we was vicious. You know what I mean? Like we was we was on that shit. Like as far as like battling and like really being like fearless. And I think he liked that aspect of it. Like yo, two mm. kids in the neighborhood. Like oh, that battle a grown man. You know what I'm saying? Like we <laughs> we were like kind of like fearless on that tip. And Tommy was ill. He um, I don't know. I haven't seen him in a while. I don't know if he still rhymes, but he kind of had a style like AZ meets like G rap, like that, like hmm. multi-syllabic, like street shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, my style was kind of more like the abstract shit. I loved like organized confusion and shit like mm. that. But we, yeah, we were like on that, like battle shit for real. And it's funny cause um, black thought told me that him and Malik met through battling. The first time they met, I could tell y'all the story, but as he told it to me, but the first time him and Malik met, they battled for three hours. Damn. Damn. You know what I'm saying? Three almost, hours? Almost to a state. I literally said the same thing when he said it to me. I was like, three hours? You sure? But yeah, he he battled Malik for three hours to a standstill. Um, If you want, I could, I could just real quick go into the story. but um, Yeah, 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 let's hear it. He so Malik went to a school, so uh, about an hour and some change outside of Philly, uh, Millersville, Millersville University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where Millersville is. Yeah. So before Malik went to school, he had a partner that he rhymed with a kid in our neighborhood named Marty. If you hear Malik on uh, certain Roots records, he'll reference Marwan. He calls him Marwan. So Marwan and Malik were like the illest in the neighborhood. Mar- Marty Marwan was known for switching between uh, English and Arabic in his rhymes. So, cause he's Muslim. Mm-hmm. So he was killed in, I want to say like 90. I can't, re- I was like a little kid, but I remember this. Cause it's like one of the first like people that I knew one of the for unfortunately like first people i knew that had been murdered mm. but marty got killed malik went to millersville and black thought uh has a cousin who's their manager now a guy named sean g sean g mm-hmm. made a record uh called controlling the rock in 1986 it was like a philly uh like a local little hit that he put out back then sean g would tell black thought like yo you ill but you're not fucking with my man Malik. <laughs> and he said that Malik said in a battle, he said uh, a line. It was like, uh, I see him. I say, Asalaamu Alaikum. And when I see a sneak side, take him. Something like that. <laughs> and Black Thought said that uh, Sean G would walk around and like yell that in his face 
when I see your sneaks, I take them. <laughs> like, just like fucking with him. Yeah. And then he would be like, yo, you're not fucking with my man Malik. You're not fucking with Malik. So when it was time for Black Thought to go to college, he got like a, a essentially a free ride to go to school with a few different schools. His dad was a veteran. He got money, you know, or potential money to go to schools. He got accepted at Temple for journalism. He could have, you know, gone wherever he wanted. He went to Millersville just, <laughs> just to meet Malik. and battle Malik B. Damn. Get the fuck out. I said, repeat that, please. <laughs> <laughs> he said, yo, he said, you know, I like the school and everything. And I liked that it was kind of in proximity to Philly, but he didn't want to be in the city, you know, be around yeah. like his homies that were like in, in the mix. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so he said like 80%, he went to Millersville just <laughs> to battle Malik being. <laughs> he said he got on campus, he went to a party and he found Malik. They went off with whatever, you know, little crews they had. They went off into the laundry room and they battled for three hours. So, oh my God. which is crazy because I'm, I'm thinking about this. I definitely battled my man Tommy and Malik was there. Some other kid, uh, we were like in their basement and me and Tommy battled for like an hour because Malik kept being like, yo, keep going, keep yeah, going, keep yeah. going. So Malik was into that shit, like, you know, like the rhyme and rhyme and shit. So they battled. Uh, Tariq says he won because he could he said he had more uh, kind of like, uh, as he described it, like showmanship. To, to, you know, he could do like a little like reggae chatting. He could do a little <laughs> melodic shit. Malik was oh, just like. Okay. Bars, bars, bars. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's how they met and how their partnership formed. It was it was kind of like, yo, my cousin is is like annoying me, telling me that this guy can beat me in a battle. I'm going to enroll in this college, <laughs> find this dude and battle him immediately. <laughs> that's crazy. I love that. It. How is wild is that? that is wild. wild. And if anybody is listening to this that was at that fucking battle, please reach out to us. <laughs> right. Please. I'm please. trying to find somebody who was there. Yeah. That would be crazy. Can you fucking imagine? And then years later, you were like, oh, shit. <laughs> Yo, these dudes are on MTV. Yeah. Together. That's crazy. crazy. What a story. That's incredible. John, I'm aware of the time. We've kept you long past when we said we would. But yeah. I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about a couple of things that you mentioned on Twitter that you were going to talk about. Two records, both by people i've never heard of this is the part i've been looking forward to you educating me about philly hip-hop i'd never heard of these two recordings that you mentioned did you want to say something about them yeah absolutely um you know there's a song on illadelph half-life called episodes where hmm. malik b is like going in you know they 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 uh it's 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 crazy because um a lot of the stuff that he's describing he's talking like street shit people getting robbed and that shit but it's it's so vivid the way he paints it you know what i'm saying uh it it kind of takes me back to mm -hmm. the 80s listening to it and he's talking about uh people getting gazelles because they're called kazals but philly niggas used to call them gazelles they're like designer glasses okay he's talking about people getting the gazelles snatched it was the year of 84 i was trying to get in the mix the year when niggas broke cheap skins gazelles and kicks even got the pat another adidas snatched off your feet man that talk is cheap the cripple can't walk for weeks the first stove was rolled in penitellas 
strolled in the dollar house parties and searched for Cinderella. Was just a little man, real bold, trying to act grown. And those of the respect to be shown, a hip hop, a little pop, and a break dancing. When they just wore a wind break, just tried to take lambskins. Remember Ziggler's uptown, the bottom's not clean. The same Charles and Southfield with Umab Gang. HRM, oh God, Sav, Brickyard, the hollow. Niggas were snatching the cells and flipping pockets for the dollar. You wore your little rope chain in West Oak Lane. And niggas from Logan King, Dag Store, we know the gang. You proclaim this game's the bullshit talk. And never even seen your man shot, our bodies in chalk. Aggravated assault, another weekend in the precinct. Taking everybody for a Vic, man, that's how we think. Back then, you catch a sucker punch off guard. Niggas will board your car, trying to walk around all hard. Niggas quick to flip your pockets if you lip service. When you see 50 niggas deep, with scullies get nervous. It ain't no telling what they can do to you, so you clutch up. Thinking and knowing you're getting stuck up in another episode. You know it's a thing, and you know it was a thing in uh, Philly in the 80s because uh, there was a group that actually made a song called Snatching Cazelles, the Cazelle Boys. And they put this record out. This, this record's from 85. And, you know, it's it's ill because it's kind of like a, a message song. Like, oh, man, people getting robbed for their glasses, um, which is it's always, always funny to me when people used to do, like, the message songs in the 80s. <laughs> um, but the, the record is significant because it's actually Jazzy Jeff's first appearance on wax oh. a young jazzy jeff is scratching on this record about people getting <laughs> this shit getting robbed <laughs> in the city about their uh, for uh, you know getting robbed for their glasses but yeah it's it just um is indicative of how layered this record is you know what i mean mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that they're saying is like super specific philly shit yeah you know what i mean mm -hmm. and i yep. think I think, you know, they had already been around the world at this point. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, they had already toured everywhere. I think their first uh, overseas tour, they went to Germany with uh, Jamaluddin Takuma, who uh, is a brilliant, is, is a brilliant uh, jazz bassist who played with Ornette Coleman back in the day. I think he was the first person to take them overseas. So they had been, they were worldly guys, but you know, they made, they still made this record that was so deeply indebted to like real specific, like Philly culture. Yeah. 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 I've, I've grown to appreciate that because when this record came out, I didn't live in Philly. I moved to Philly in 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I was definitely listening to Illadelph Half-Life before that, but it wasn't until I, you know, I moved here and had lived here for a while and listened to this record again. And I'm like, oh, Broad and Lombard. Okay. I know what he's talking mm -hmm. about. Like he's the front he's all these... rock on a McKean Street block. Like it's exactly, yeah, it's yeah. Sav. Like it's it's mm -hmm. it's full of, you know, street names, references, neighborhoods. It's crazy. Yeah. Even him a... talking about SEPTA. Exactly. Yeah. Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation <laughs> Authority is what I'm probably on. I ain't pushing yeah. the land to watch a sex show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. crazy. I it love just, that line. Yeah. It just took on a whole new a whole new meaning, you know, once I was here and had lived in the city for a while. It's great. Yeah. You get like the, the context to the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What were we gonna say? You were going to talk about no. the, the second one. Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> I said on Twitter, uh, I wonder how long the episode goes before I bring up Minds of Souls, ultra rare, blinded by the light, 12 inch. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's crazy because um, I looked for this record literally for decades. 
like uh minds of soul were a group from my neighborhood like they're from west oak lane i didn't know any of them but i remember when this uh 12 inch came out it came out uh a year after Philadelphia half-life but i remember they had these big yellow posters that they put up all around our neighborhood that said the minds of soul are coming blinded by the light the new single and i heard it on the radio it kind of sounds like sonically it kind of sounds like uh concerto with a desperado Mm, like it has this big orchestral sample it's very much in that lane of like dark orchestral mid-90s Mm hip-hop and i looked for this record forever um and couldn't find it couldn't find it in any of the shops for years i just had a cassette off of the radio but the minds of soul were uh Apparently they were Black Thoughts like childhood friends. Okay. And yeah. if you listen to this record, they're like Fifth Dynasty, Fifth Dynasty, yeah. like shouting that shit out. And Black Thought shouts that out on multiple Roots records. You know what I mean? Uh, especially on on Illadelph Half Life. Uh, so that's he's referencing that crew that all of these cats were were down with. That I don't really have. I I know more about the Roots old crew, uh, Foreign Objects, mm-hmm. who are all over. Uh, organics i don't really know outside of minds of soul i don't really know anything about uh the fifth dynasty but this record really is one of my favorite like rare philly records from this era and it captures the same kind of energy that illadelph half-life captures and black thoughts doing like background vocals like when they're doing darkness no sight you're blinded by the light my purpose for this elevation keep it tight like he you can hear him kind of in the background in the chorus and he's credited okay with background background vocals on the vinyl so yeah it's just you know i I figured at some point we would be talking about like the roots and you know a lot of uh philly mcs show up on illadelph Mm half-life which is ill to me, you know, Bahamadia's on it, Mars Co-op, Dice yeah. Raw. Mm-hmm. I think that in, uh, you know, in, in a, a very similar way to how the production on this record got harder and, and grittier, the MCN is very Philly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Very much Philly of that time period. So they brought in some cats to, you know, Mm-hmm. kind of have the, the roots kind of do that too on their records they, they always have a record where there's like a cypher on wax yeah you know what i'm saying where they bring yeah. in some cats like the lesson the one the real long one with uh shorty nomas on it and foreign objects the one on uh organics yeah. clones on uh illadelph half-life mm-hmm. so yeah whenever mm-hmm. i think of illadelph half-life and mid-90s roots i always think about this Minds of Soul record, Blinded by the Light, they're like connected in my mind. That's wild. I'd never heard of the Minds of Soul until your tweet. And so I made sure to set aside time before we sat down tonight to listen to that song. And it's great. Uh, it sounds crazy, right? It's great. I definitely picked up on the concerto of a Desperado feel. I also thought of Mob Deep for some reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they definitely sound like they're from Philly. Did they? Was there like a full length or was it just the single? I th- I think they just put out the, uh, that single, but I don't know if um, one of those labels like Chopped Herring or something put out like a, a full length. I'm, I'm looking on Discogs now because I live on Discogs. <laughs> um, 
Oh yeah, okay. So yeah, Chopped Herring put out an EP. Okay. Suffer the consequences. Yeah, I'm gonna be looking oh, into that. This starts at forty bucks or thirty bucks. I might buy this now because <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't have it. I don't have the uh, the EP. I just got the uh, the twelve inch. Yeah, yeah. Did you say where you eventually found it? Was it Discogs? No. Um, I think I got it. I don't know if y'all know Ox, the uh, record collector um slash like record dealer he he's his collection is like bananas i think i bought it off of ox okay okay yeah i'm not 100 percent sure because i i usually i have a policy i don't pay like crazy prices for rare philly rap records yeah because i'm like yo i live here i'll find that shit (laughs) somebody somebody got it yeah Yeah. but this you know there's there's a couple philly rap records that i've paid like you know, like $200 or, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I just can't find it. Yeah. No, anywhere. I feel that. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? But there's some, like I have a record, uh, a woman named Red Bull who used to, uh, uh, put out rap records in, uh, like the, she was active in like the, the mid nineties around this time that we're talking. She did an EP called Raindrops. Mm-hmm. Um, that I loved, but I only had like radio tapes. Cause like Bahamadia's radio show, and uh, Cosmic Kev and Kobe Kobe and DJ Rand's show Radioactive would play like the underground shit too. You know what I mean? Like uh, they were mixed shows, so they would play like mostly underground shit. So I, I would have like radio tapes of all of this stuff that would end up being like super rare. You know what I mean? But uh, that Red Bull EP, I, I paid like a dollar for that, mm. and I've seen it. I've seen it on Discogs for like a hundred bucks. Mm. You know. So yeah, it's it's like another thing related to like the writing and the DJ and it's like yeah. the yeah. constant pursuit of, of yeah. finding shit and yeah. remembering old shit to go find. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. I heard that mm, yeah. once on the radio in like '94. Yeah, can I find it now? Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? There's like an adrenaline rush in that. It's crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a little too into like <laughs> the, the record thing. <laughs> But I think also um, I haven't made a record uh, since 2020. So my process is usually like I get obsessive about digging mm-hmm. for a while. And then I sit down and make music out of all of the stuff that I dug up. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm I think mm-hmm. I'm in like that phase right now. Just like okay. building up like the, the record arsenal to like chop shit up later. Nice. Yeah. I have so much to learn and I wish I could talk to you for another three hours, but I know that you have not eaten today. So we'll, we'll get you out of here. Um, (laughs) Thank you for such a lovely conversation. One of the reasons I wanted to have you join us on the podcast when I reached out was because I knew that you would just have all of these stories, especially about Illadelph Half-Life. Like I just knew that you just had all these stories and memories that would just make this a wonderful conversation and ex- an experience for the people that are listening to this. So thank you. Thank you for all of that. And thank yes. you for coming through. Yeah. I I appreciate y'all so much. And like this record, I really love, love Illadelph Half-Life. You know what I'm saying? Like it came out right before my 16th birthday. I remember when I bought the tape, it was raining. I remember I uh, went to like a record store in Center City and bought the tape and I was uh, sitting on the steps of a church waiting for uh, the bus to take me back up Broad Street and it was like raining. I had a hoodie on, I had my headphones and I'm just listening. That record um, 
was a, a panic. Mm. Like that mm-hmm. shit came on. You know mm. what I mean? I wake up in the darkness at 12, 17, the mm. shots of sirens. You look out the window, peep the high beam, and yeah. I just search it. Like, I, like I've, I've like vivid memories of like the first time I hit play on this record, mm. and I've listened to it a billion times since then. So, yeah, this is my, my pleasure to come on and talk about this. Mm. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that, you know, I know that you're working on something. It sounds very secret. You're not ready to talk about it yet. <laughs> but um, is there anything else that folks should know, um, you know, pieces we should look out for, anything that you've been up to or going to be up to lately? Yeah, I'm working on another piece for OK Player uh, that's all about how tape trading spread hip hop and, and wow. rap music bootlegging and, and tape trading so i'm uh interviewing a bunch of folks i interviewed uh jay Quan, who's a, a fantastic brilliant uh historian you know we talked all about like the old cold crush tapes and and that sort of thing um i interviewed my man dj ratmatic and he told me all about like the rhodium swap meet where Dr. Dre and Easy E met and like a Japanese American gentleman named Steve Yano, who used to have like all of the like bootlegs and like the tapes and stuff that really helped spread hip hop in LA. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm mm-hmm. trying to paint this picture from the the old school tapes in the Bronx, you know, Kuhert versus uh the L brothers, you know what I mean? Um the old Cold Crush tapes that Elvis Moreno, uh, tape master, used to dub uh, off of the like live Cold Crush recording or live performances, and really just chart how this process of tape trading helped spread hip hop to different cities, and you know, obviously, eventually around the world. So that's that's going to be an OK Player piece that'll probably be out in November. I'm like doing mm. my research and interviews now. Wow. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. It's it's, I'm very excited. It's, it's going to be dope. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait for that. That could be a whole documentary. That's, you know, I, I said earlier that I don't know that I want to be a, a journalist. That's not a thousand percent accurate. <laughs> um, but I, I have been uh, dipping into film and nice. I want to do documentaries and stuff. So apply this knowledge to yeah you know the screen okay basically yeah all right i love it i love it mm-hmm. well thank you again john yeah, we really right. appreciate thank your you so time much. your your stories and your knowledge great conversation folks thanks for listening this has been the next movement peace, peace.